finding the right mic over here. <laughs> All right. We are so glad that you're here with us today. I have been really excited about this message today. And I just want to start. We're in this series called Kingdom Come. And it is through the book of Mark talking about the life of Jesus um, talking about who he was, what he did while he was here, who he is, and how he set up uh, a template, basically, for the right way for us to live to have the full life that he wants to give us. And uh, I want to start with a definition of the word revolutionary, because today we're talking about Jesus the revolutionary. Uh, revolutionary, a definition for that is involving or causing a complete or dramatic change. We in America should be more comfortable with this idea than I think we are because we've gotten very settled and content and comfy where we are. But we started with a revolutionary war. <laughs> we started with a revolt against the status quo, against the tyranny that was oppressing us so that we could have freedoms that we didn't have before. So we were founded on a revolution is how it started. And we're going to talk today about how Jesus was a revolutionary. The other definition I want to go to is counterculture, which you'll hear me say a lot today. It goes along with revolutionary. It's a way of life and set of attitudes opposed to or at variance with the prevailing social norm. A way of life and set of attitudes opposed to or at variance with the prevailing social norm. So we are going to see today not only that Jesus was a revolutionary, but what he did was very counter to the present culture at his time and what that means for us today. So we're going to just jump right into it in Mark chapter 2. If you want to follow along, you can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. But Mark chapter 2 starting in verse 15 we have point number one today, a new type of follower. I do want to let you guys know in your worship guides or bulletins that you get when you come in, we have fill-in-the-blank sermon notes for you to be able to follow along, um, read some of the verses that are on there, any extra points or quotes that we have so that you can keep that with you and be able to reference that. So make sure you get those when you come in on Sundays. But number one today is a new type of follower. And we get our passage for this in Mark 2, 15 through 17. It says this, Later, Jesus and his disciples went to have a meal with Levi. Levi, also known as Peter, or uh, not Peter, sorry, also known as Matthew. So we have the book of Matthew written by Matthew, but he was known by Levi at first. Among the guests in Levi's home were many tax collectors. Stop here. It's not like just the IRS. The tax collectors were Jewish people who were viewed as traitors, scum of the earth, didn't want to be seen with the tax collectors because they basically went and what they viewed it as turned their backs on their people to go work for Rome and collect taxes. And they were being extremely oppressed economically because of the high taxation at the time by the Roman Empire. So they were like scum of the earth. <laughs> they, were, they were wealthy scum of the earth because a lot of them also skimmed and took some extra money. So they would say, okay, your tax is $500. Well, actually, I'm going to say it's $700 so I can keep the 200 and then give Rome the 500 Or maybe I'll give Rome more than what to do so that I look good in their eyes, right? So this is the type of person we're talking about when we say tax collector. So at Levi's home, there were many tax collectors and notable sinners. Notable sinners. I 
would guess, because all of us in our broken, sinful human minds will judge people, whether we're trying to be a judgmental person or not. And I bet you if I say notable sinners, someone probably pops into your head who you think is a notable sinner. So maybe it's someone famous, maybe it's someone you know, maybe it's the black sheep of the family, maybe you are the black sheep of the family and you're the notable sinner. But these are people that were sinners of note. People noticed their sin. So we have tax collectors, the scum of the earth, betrayers of the people at the time. Notable sinners, the people who were known all through the community as the sinners of the sinners, sharing a meal with Jesus, who we know never sinned, walked around healing people, walked around talking about God, and who many called the Son of God. So notable sinners, tax collectors, and Jesus, for there were many kinds of people who followed him. Many kinds of people. But when the religious scholars and the Pharisees found out that Jesus was keeping company and dining with sinners and tax collectors, they were indignant. They got angry and resentful. So they approached Jesus' disciples and said to them, why is it? See, they don't even go to Jesus. They're going around behind his back to the people who hang with him. And they say, why is it that someone like Jesus, this prominent rabbi, defiles himself by eating with sinners and tax collectors? Basically, he's ruining his reputation. And so what they thought was his spiritual life follows his reputation. Verse 17, but when Jesus overheard their complaint, Jesus has ears everywhere, guys. We see this all through Mark, all through the Gospels. Jesus is like, Jesus heard what they were saying in their hearts. <laughs> He's got ears everywhere. But when Jesus overheard their complaint, he said to them, who goes to the doctor for a cure? Those who are well or those who are sick? I have not come to call the righteous, it's quote, righteous. Jesus, just imagine him up there with quote fingers. I have not come to call the righteous, but those who are sinners and bring them to repentance. Think about this. Say you are just, you're feeling full of health and full of life. You're like, man, I've been eating so good. I have so much energy. I get a full solid hours of eight hours of sleep at night. I think I should call the doctor. I think I should go get checked out. Something is obviously wrong. <laughs> no, that's not what we do. It's like, oh my goodness, I can't sleep at night. I am getting the chills. I have aches and pains everywhere. I should probably call the doctor because I can't figure out what's going on, right? He says, who goes to the doctor for a cure? Those who are well or those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, the spiritually healthy, or the ones who think they are spiritually healthy. And he's talking to those people, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. I have not come for them, but for sinners. So today, culture says, pick the best and the brightest, right? Let's find the cream of the crop. Pick the best and the brightest. But Jesus, the revolutionary, says, find the hurt and bring healing. Find the hurt and bring healing. So what are we supposed to do if we follow Jesus, if we are Christians, little Christs, and we're following in his way, what are we supposed to do then? We aren't supposed to just pick the best and the brightest, the ones who appear to have it all together. When we build our team, we go to the hurting and we bring healing. We go to the hurting. That is Jesus, the revolutionary. You see, he loves you enough. He loves you so much to accept you just as you are. Whether you're the wealthy, stealing tax collector or whether you're the notable sinner 
or whatever negative view you may have of yourself. I'm not equipped. I'm not good enough. I don't know enough of the Bible to share with others. I don't have a good enough prayer life. I forget to read my Bible every day. Whatever it is that you think is not enough, not up to par or sinful, Jesus loves you enough to accept you right where you are. But here's the caveat. He loves you too much to let you stay there. Because what we know later on in the story is he's hanging with the notable sinners and the tax collectors, the demon-possessed, the prostitutes, the adulterers. He's hanging with all these people. But what happens? They end up being prominent missionaries across Asia and the Middle East. And they carry the word of God to countries and start churches and raise up leaders. They become the best and the brightest. But that's not when they were picked. When they were picked, when they were chosen by Jesus, they were not the best in the rest. So when we look around at church, I want us to see a whole lot of notable sinners. I want us to see a whole lot of the hurting, of the broken, of the spiritually sick. But Jesus loves us too much to let us stay there. I want to see all of those people starting to grow. And we're getting so many stories of this, guys. We're getting so many stories. And I would really encourage you, if you are starting to see life change and transformation in your life, let us know so we can share with people because we want to see what God is doing to change lives. It encourages us together as the body of Christ. He lifted them up to their full potential. We are supposed to be creators, not critics. We don't come in and say, oh, look who they're hanging out with. Uh, I'm not so sure about them. But we're supposed to create life into it. We went to, um, a, some of us went to a women's conference this weekend, and one of the speakers talked about how God goes and runs to the chaos. Genesis 1, the earth was void and, void and formless and without life or without shape. And right there in the midst of chaos, he starts to speak light and order and life. He runs to your chaos, and we try to hide it. And he runs to the chaos and creates something out of it. He creates something beautiful out of it. I want to say I am pulling a decent amount of stuff today from this book, The Next Christians. It is one of my favorite books of all time. I would highly recommend you pick it up and read it. Um, it's called the, the Next Christians, The Good News About the End of Christian America. <laughs> How many of you know America is not a Christian nation anymore? We're post-Christian at this point. We have more people not going to church or leaving the church or don't even know about Jesus than those who do. Um, our leaders definitely aren't always doing Christian things. Um, and our culture isn't Christian. But this is the good news about that and what we can be in it. And so one of those points in the book is that we are called to be creators and not critics. Number two today is that Jesus gives us a new definition of family. A new definition of family. Mark 3, 32 through 35. When the crowd sitting around Jesus heard this, they spoke up and said to him, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. He answered them, who is my true mother and my true brothers? Then looking in the eyes of those who were sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my true family members. For whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Now, depending on who you are and what your family life is like, this could be good news or hard news. This would be like, yes, okay, I don't have to claim those people. We can move on. We can have a different type of family. Or it could be, wow, what are you saying here? I'm actually, I love my family. They're amazing. What are you saying? I'm supposed to just kick them to the curb? No, it's just giving us a new definition of family. There's a biblical commentary on this passage 
And it says this, there are four different things that true kinship is found, where true kinship is found. Jesus is saying that true kinship or family is found, number one, in a common experience. A common experience for the family of God, for the Christian, that is our common experience that we are forgiven sinners. We were not the best of the brightest, best and the brightest when we started. We may still not be, but we are forgiven by him. Number two, where true family is found, is a common interest. And the common interest in the family of God is knowing God more and more. We are interested in knowing God in a personal way, not just about him, but in our hearts as a relationship. Number three, that makes true family of God is common obedience. And for the people of God, that that is our common leader, Jesus Christ. So we all are found obeying Jesus, striving to obey him, striving to live like he lived and do the things that he encouraged us to do. And number four, where true family is found, is in a common goal. And our common goal in the family of Jesus is to bring people into his kingdom. Our common goal we should all be working towards as a Victory Faith family is bringing people along with us into God's kingdom. Someone brought us into his kingdom, right? Someone encouraged us. And so we should also be partnering hand in hand with others to bring them also into his kingdom. That is what true family is. So culture says blood is thicker than water, right? Blood is thicker than water. Or they say family is what you make it. It could go either way. But what Jesus the revolutionary says, family are those who have chosen God's family. When we realize that we are, and we talk about this in our freedom groups, if you've been through it or if you will go through it, you'll hear this. We are not physical beings, come to church on Sunday or pull out our Bible in the mornings and have a temporary spiritual experience. We are not physical beings having a temporary spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings, primarily, first and foremost, spiritual beings having a temporary physical experience on this earth. Because when we die and our body is done, the physical is over, we will still have a spirit that lives on with Christ. So we are not just having temporary spiritual experience, but we are spiritual beings having temporary physical experiences. So we need to look not at our physical family, but who is our spiritual family. And that is those who have chosen God's family. And even Jesus said that. And yes, we're going to want our physical family to come into that spiritual family. Amen? But we have got to have our focus on what God has encouraged us to have that focus on. Number three today is he's given us new status. New status or a new perception and idea of status. In Mark 10, 13 through 16, it says this. The parents kept bringing their little children to Jesus so that he would lay his hands on them and bless them. But the disciples kept rebuking and scolding the people for doing it. When Jesus saw what was happening, he became indignant. We heard this earlier where the religious leaders became indignant that he was hanging out with sinners. Now Jesus is indignant because they're turning away little children. He became indignant with his disciples and said to them, Let all the little children come to me and never hinder them. Don't you know that God's kingdom exists for such as these? God's kingdom exists for the least among us. Verse 15, listen to the truth I speak. Whoever does not open their arms and receive God's kingdom like a teachable child will never enter it. Then he embraced each child and laying his hands on them, he lovingly blessed each one. 
And I think we, we get this, like, picture Bible story book picture of Jesus. And he's got, like, maybe seven or eight children hovering around him and sitting on his lap. I think there was probably thousands. <laughs> and he took the time to embrace and bless each child. Each child. I mean, snot down their faces, dirty diapers when they didn't have good disposable diapers, um, the acne-faced teenagers, all of it. He embraced each one and blessed each one. And that is the status that he sets for us. The kingdom of God has to be received as if you are as teachable as a child. How many of you have kids and they are constantly asking why? Why, 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 why? For Zay, it was how, 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 how. He would ask how for everything. But why, why, why? I still ask why, 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 why. I want to know why all the time. I think it annoys everybody around me. Why, 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 why is the sky blue? Why does hair grow out your nose? Why do you have to put on makeup, mom? Why are you doing that? Uh, why, 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 why? We need to be as teachable, eager, hungry as a child. And that is when we're accepted into the kingdom of God. Culture says, get power and knowledge. Get power and knowledge. But Jesus, the revolutionary, says, stay humble and innocent. Stay humble like a child and innocent like a child. So we need to think, do I care about my status? Do I care about my status? And what does that mean? What does that mean to me that I, that I care about it or how I care about it? Again, in this book, The Next Christians, he says, we are to be called, not employed. Now, that doesn't mean everyone go hit up unemployment today. That's not what I'm saying. It's that we are more than employed. We are not just employees, but we are called. Wherever we are, we are called by God on a mission, on purpose, for a purpose, wherever we are. You do not need to be in vocational church ministry or a missionary in Africa to be called. And the next Christians are going to be called, not just employed. So what we need to pray again, this is the prayer that we've been praying this week in our freedom groups, is that Jesus, you would show me, search me and show me if there is any way in me that is not of you. Jesus, that you would change me. What is the status I am seeking? Now change the status I am seeking. Change the definition of the status I am seeking and then fill me. Fill me with the true status that I have as a child of God. It's all throughout the scripture he calls us children he wants us to be like children. That's the stat. He doesn't call us kings. He calls us children. He calls us children. So number four today is a new standard. So he gives us a new status. Now he is giving a new standard. Mark 10, 2 through 12. This is going to seem at first like an odd passage for this point. But just bear with me, okay? Mark 10, starting in verse 2. At one point, some of the Pharisees came seeking to entrap him with a question. So they're coming and they're trying to trick him. Tell us, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Verse 3, he answered them, what did Moses command you? They replied, Moses permitted us to write a certificate of separation that would be valid to complete a divorce. Jesus said, yes, Moses wrote this exception for you because you are hard-hearted. But from the beginning, God created male and female for this reason. A man will leave his parents and be wedded to his wife, and the husband and wife will be joined as one flesh. And after that, they no longer exist as two, but one flesh. So there you have it. 
what God has joined together, no one has the right to separate. Verse 10, once indoors, his disciples asked him to explain it to them. So this is the disciples. Jesus is out teaching and saying radical, crazy things. And the disciples are like, yes, mm-hmm. yep, I'm with this guy. Mm-hmm. Sounds good, whatever he says. And then they get behind closed. Hey, hey, so can you explain what that was? I do not understand what you meant. <laughs> okay, so they go behind closed doors. And asked them to explain it. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if the wife divorces her husband and marries another, she also commits adultery. Pause. This is not me making a point about marriage and divorce and remarriage. This is not a message on that. That is a message for another time about something else. The point of this is it's an example that he has given. So the people are coming to trap him. And they say, well, let's take it back to, like, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the, the second, third, fourth books of the Bible where God gave Moses the law. So these are the rules, right? These are the rules of today. These are the rules and the standards that we have in our world and in our culture today. Jesus says, well, actually, I'm going to go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I'm going to go all the way back to creation. And we're going to talk about not the current standard that we're living by in church or in religion or in the world or in the government or whatever it is. I'm actually going to go back to the original standard that God set. See, there was a law where it was not sinful to divorce. There was this example through other types of laws as well. But Jesus says, I'm coming now bringing a new kingdom where we're going back to God's original intent for humanity and for creation. He's raising the bar and setting a new standard. So this was a, this is a commentary I read on it. This was addressing a debate in the legal and religious rules of the day. So we're talking about what are, what are rules, expectations, standards today that we experience? Because so many times we're like, okay, well, what should I do? What's right or wrong? Oh, follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. The Bible says your heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it, it says. We don't, don't listen. I mean, it's okay to have feelings. Feelings are good. Jesus wept. He was indignant. He was sad. He was happy. He was all of these things. Feelings are good. But he didn't run his life based off those feelings. He experienced the feelings. He did not make life decisions and choices based off the feelings. So it was addressing a debate in the legal and religious rules of the day. Women at this time hesitated to even marry at all because it was so unstable. The instability of marriage, all they had to do was say, all right, I'm separating this woman, bye. And then a woman who had already been married at that time, there was like remarried, no one would want her. That was what the culture was at the time. Women were property, women were belongings, and they were just write a certificate and say, all right, bye, you can leave now. I don't care about you. And then the, the man could probably have his selection of getting remarried for decades and decades. We would have like 80-year-old men marrying 12-year-old girls. And so this was what was happening. It was an inequality even for gender. And Jesus was the revolutionary saying, no, I'm going to help provide stability for women. That was a sub-point of this whole thing. He also says, I'm going to elevate what marriage is supposed to be what I would like to have it be for people, he's elevating that point. So he is talking about gender, he's talking about marriage, but he's also talking on a bigger picture. And that's the point today when he gives us a new standard is that he wants us to push ourselves to live wherever we're at now. Whatever's happened in the past is the past and we've been forgiven and he has made a new creation. The old is made new 
And from this moment forward, we move on. So from today forward, not the past. Today forward, we are, what is God's standard of living? And how can I achieve that original standard set at creation that Jesus came back here to bring? So Jesus was fighting for women. He was fighting for God's original standard. He was elevating marriage. He was saying that marriage isn't just for pleasure. When the man gets bored with you, he can write it off and leave. He was saying it's also for responsibility. More than that, it's also to be a picture of Christ in the church. And he wanted that to be a good and holy picture. The point is that this is an example of this. The culture says, how close to the line can I get? And now I'm telling you, if you've ever worked in student ministry or with teens, it is always like whenever you come and have like the dating talks and stuff, like, well, how far is too far? Like, well, how far are you getting? <laughs> because whatever, however far you get, you're going to end up going 10 steps past that because hitting the brakes at a certain point doesn't happen. <laughs> so we're always, how far is too far? How close to the line can I get without crossing it? But Jesus, the revolutionary, is using this as an example to say, live in such a way that you don't even see the line. Live in such a way, he tells us, live above reproach where no one can come to you with any credibility and say, well, actually, they did this, this, and this, and they're two-faced and hypocritical and all these things. Live in such a way that with no credibility can a person come and say, they've been dancing all over that line and passed it and hopscotching and back and forth. We're going to live in such a way that we don't even see the line. It's not about the rules. It's about the greater purpose and intention behind them. He says he didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to delete and cancel out the law and the rules. He came to fulfill them. He came to fill them up, to give them life, to reinstate what the original purpose was for them. People had gotten too wrapped up in the checklists and the do's and don'ts that they had forgotten God's heart behind them. And when we only ask what's right and wrong, where's the pros and cons list, show me the exact verse in the Bible, and we don't think about why might God have done that. Interesting example, don't boil a goat in its own milk. That is one of the Levitical laws. Why in the world? <laughs> no, what is the point? Or when God was providing them manna when they were in the wilderness for 40 years, he said, don't you hoard it for the next day. It is only for today. Well, why not? Why can't they like plan, right? Like the ants or whatever who store up for summer. Because for one, they did not have any sort of refrigeration or proper storage. It was going to be nasty and make them sick. Two, he wanted them to trust him for their daily bread, for their daily needs. It's all about relationship in his heart to protect us, to love us, to give us the best life we have. So we are called to be countercultural, not relevant. We don't need to be relevant to the standards of this world. We are called to be countercultural like Jesus. I'm going to read an excerpt from this book. It says, the church should be offering an alternative way of living and being that stands out in a confused and broken world, not simply copying what it sees. The Western inclination is to chase after wealth, comfort, power, happiness, success, and the ever sought after American dream. But Jesus is describing an alternative way of living and engaging that flies in the face of these values. The clear call of Jesus is for the Christian community to be salt and light. That is to flavor it up and bring some light to this world. Not simply a bunch of small lights in all the dark corners of the world, but a communal light that provides a picture to the world of what a loving, sacrificial, countercultural community really is. 
And this is what I want our church to be. It is a collective of people living by a different standard, raising the bar and inviting everyone who's interested to join in. So to follow with the marriage example, many times we hear, well, um, the rate of divorce for first marriages is 50%. It goes up after that for second and third marriages and so on. And we say, well, the divorce rate is the same in the church and in the world. That's actually not true. The divorce rate for those who attend and participate in church weekly or up to three times a month or more, the divorce rate drops. So it's not just people who say I am a Christian and maybe I go to this church on Easter and Christmas, but people who are involved week in, week out with the church, the divorce rate actually drops in that point. So we are raising the standard. We are raising the standard, and it's in more ways than that example. Number five today is new honor. New honor. So he's teaching us a new way to show honor and who to. Mark 12, 14 through 17. So tell us then, what do you think? This is, again, the religious leaders trying to trap him. They do this a lot. What do you think? Is it proper for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because they viewed him as an oppressor. They didn't agree with all his politics or how they were treating him. I think some of us have probably asked this question at different times in life too. Is it right for us to be paying taxes to this? What is my money actually going to? Jesus saw through their hypocrisy, because he knew they were just trying to trick him, and said to them, why are you testing me? Show me one of the Roman coins. So he gets a coin. They brought him a silver coin used to pay the tax. Now tell me, Jesus said, whose head is on the coin and whose inscription is stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus said precisely, the corn bears the image of the emperor Caesar. So you should pay the emperor his portion. But because you bear the image of God, the coin bears the image of the emperor. But because you bear the image of God, because you bear the image of God, you must give to God all that belongs to him. And they were utterly stunned by Jesus' words. There's so many times where it's like, drop the mic. They try to trap him. They can't. So culture says, only honor what you agree with. Culture says, only honor what you agree with. Because, oh, I don't want to be condoning anything. I don't agree with. And I'm not saying condoning. I'm saying honor. Jesus, the revolutionary, says, honor their God-given place and authority. The Bible says that God rises up the kings and the kingdoms of this world, and he allows the kings and the kingdoms of this world to fall. So every president around the world and in this nation, every king, every leadership, every government, every kingdom has been allowed and or raised up and brought down by God. It is not just the party you align with. It is not just the opinion you align with. It says he will use evil kings to enact his purposes or to enact his judgment. So whether you agree or not, God has allowed them that place of position and authority for a purpose. Again, it's like the song was saying, even when I don't see it, you're working. And do we really trust God's ultimate purpose over what we see right in this moment? Do we trust his ultimate purpose? At this conference we were at this weekend, they FaceTimed or did a video chat with a pastor in the Ukraine. And he organizes a ministry there. So far, they've saved over 136,000 individuals in the Ukraine. 
they also are saying, we don't even talk about denomination here anymore. They are not talking about their differences in belief. They are all coming together. She said, what is the state of the church in the Ukraine right now? He says, we are mobilized. We are in action. She asked, how are you feeling right now? He said, all I can do to think of it is just because Jesus is in the boat with you, referencing the Bible stories, just because Jesus is in the boat with you doesn't mean you won't go through the storm. But it means the boat won't sink. And then right when she was about to pray for him, she said, let's pray for you. He said, stop for a moment. I want you to know that Putin and his, what he is doing does not represent every Russian. And he, a Ukrainian, being attacked and persecuted, killed, family separated. That he does not represent every Russian. There are 10,000 Russian troops who have died and 10,000 families grieving them. I want you to pray for the Russians. Pray for your enemies. Love those who persecute you, whether you agree with them or not, whether they are bombing your country and killing your families. Honor. They are still image bearers of God. They are still, and it does not mean he's condoning what they're doing. He obviously is not. But he said, pray for the Russians. And he is on ground zero seeing the wreckage. Pray for them. So we don't honor who we agree with. We honor image bearers of God because we honor God and we live for him above all. Our citizenship is not in a country here or of this planet. Our citizenship is in heaven. A basic image of God and world leadership all across the spectrum. This book, again, says we are called to be provoked to action. He said the church is mobilized, not offended. We're called to be provoked, not offended. So when you hear something you don't agree with, when you see injustice in the world, are you offended? Or are you provoked to do something about it? What? Are, are you offended and just want to sit there and, you know, keyboard warriors, they call them, type on and say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe how horrible this town or this school or this country or this world is at doing this, that, and the other. Or do you get up off the chair and go do something about it? Are you provoked into increasing the good in this world because you have the goodness of God in your life and we are called to share it with others? Another commentary on this passage says, The coin had Caesar's image upon it and therefore belonged to Caesar. Human beings have God's image upon them. God created them in his own image and therefore belong to God. All humans, not just the ones we like. Or get along with. If the state remains within its proper boundaries and makes its proper demands, individuals must give it their loyalty and their service. It remains true that in all ordinary circumstances, our Christianity should make us better citizens. Our Christianity should make us better citizens. And how we interact in this world should be a testament to the fact that we are living as citizens of heaven, number one, and first and foremost. So, we have new honor. Number six today, we have a new revelation. A new revelation, Mark 12, 18. Some of the Sadducees, this was, again, religious leaders, a religious group that denied there was a resurrection of the dead, came to ask Jesus this question. Again, they're trapping him. We notice a lot of these times Jesus shows up as the rev revolutionary is when the religious leaders are trying to trap him. They asked Jesus this question, verse 19. Teacher. The law of Moses, they're going back to their rules list. 
teaches that if a man dies before he has children, his brother should marry the widow and raise up children for his brother's family line. Now, there was a family with seven brothers. The oldest got married. Okay, I'm not going to read this whole thing. He, they're going through this old, like, law. Okay, the husband has to, it was a way that got, again, it sounds weird because this guy would be married to a whole bunch of widows, right, if all the brothers died and then he, so this is what was happening. And they were asking, okay, which one's going to be married in heaven? Which one's his actual wife in heaven? Again, it was just rules that were made up for the time. What it was for was to protect and provide for widows. It was God trying to make sure they were protected in a time where all they were was property. Finally, we get to verse 24. Jesus answered them, you are mistaken because your hearts are not filled with revelation of the scriptures or the power of God. Jesus, the revolutionary, wants us to not just look at the checklist and the rules and the regulations and the pros and cons list and the good or bad and where the line is. Jesus, the revolutionary, wants us to be filled with the revelation of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Down in verse 28, he goes on and says, a certain religious scholar overheard them debating when he saw how beautifully Jesus answered all their questions, he posed one of his own and asked, Teacher, which commandment is the greatest of all? Jesus answered him, The most important of all the commandments is this. The Lord Yahweh, our God, is one. You are to love the Lord Yahweh, your God, with a passionate heart from the depths of your soul, with your every thought and with all your strength. This is the great and supreme commandment. I don't know, but that doesn't sound like a checklist to me. With the passion of your heart and the depths of your soul, with your every thought. That's something beyond a checklist. And verse 31, and the second is this, you must love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. You will never find a greater commandment than these. The religious scholar replied, yes, that's true, teacher. You spoke beautifully when you said that God is one and there is no one else besides him. And there is something more important to God than all the sacrifices and burnt offerings. That was their rules and regulations to make amends, to be able to make it in God's presence. It's the commandment to constantly love God with every passion of your heart, with your every thought. He's repeating what Jesus said. And with all your strength and to love your neighbor the same way as yourself. When Jesus noticed how thoughtfully and sincerely the man answered, he said to him, you are not far from the reality of God's kingdom. After that, no one dared to question him again. You are not far. When you realize it's about the passion of your heart and your every thought and all the strength of your soul, when that's what it is, us living as spiritual beings merely having a temporary physical experience and not the other way around, that's when we are very close to the reality of God's kingdom. And Jesus said it's accessible to us here and now. Culture says don't uh, do just enough to get by. Just do what we have to, get to the next paycheck, get through the day. I can get through until I put the kids to bed or until I can turn the lights off and go to bed or until I can binge on Netflix. I can just get through to the next thing. But Jesus, the revolutionary, says there's more to life. There's more to life than punching the clock, than taking a paycheck, than raising 2.5 children. There's more to life than this. Again, from the book, we're called to be grounded, not distracted grounded in him to have the full life he has for us not just distracted and then finally today number seven gives us a new offering a new offering what are we to offer him as worship mark 12 41 through 44 says this then he sat down near the offering box jesus was at the temple so he came to church he was near the offering box 
All the people were dropping in their coins. Many of the rich would put in very large sums. But a destitute widow walked up and dropped in two small copper coins worth less than a penny. Jesus called his disciples together. I was like, come on, guys, come over here. I got something to tell you. I tell you the truth. Can you just imagine if you're hanging out with Jesus, you're just sitting in church one day, you came to church sitting in the row with Jesus. And he's like, all right, guys, come here. I got something to tell you. You're like, oh, my goodness, he's about to have another mic drop moment. Oh, my goodness. You get so excited for whatever kind of kingdom truth he's about to reveal. And he says this, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given a larger offering than any of the wealthy. A larger offering than any of the wealthy. And the disciples are like, no, less than a penny. <laughs> like, literally, you are delusional. For the rich only gave out of their surplus. Only gave out of what they had left over, what they had extra. They waited till the end of the month to see what was left in the bank account before they decided to give to God. For the rich only gave out of their surplus, but she sacrificed out of her poverty and, God, and gave to God all that she had to live on, which was everything that she had. She gave all that she had, not just out of the extra, but all she had and all she possessed. Culture says either God understands I can't give or give to make yourself look good. Either side of the coin. Jesus the revolutionary says, give so your trust in God is evident and his blessings can grow. Giving is about the heart. Whether it's your finances, that's obviously part of it. He talks about that a lot. Whether it's your finances or it's your time or it's your talent, whatever it may be. Giving, he says it's more blessed to give than to receive, but giving isn't about because God needs something. God made us in this whole world. He doesn't need anything from us to do what he wants to do. Nothing. What he wants is to know that we trust him. And that our trust is made evident as a testimony, like with this widow who gave all she had. It became a testimony of sacrifice, of offering, of giving to God and trusting that God was going to give everything that she needed. That we are trusting him again for the daily bread and the daily provision. So we need to hold our resources with an open hand to God. We hold everything God has given us with an open hand because we know that ultimately it was his in the first place. He's letting us borrow it to steward it the way that he wants it. I'm going to close by reading a passage out of this book. And it's a quote. It's an anonymous letter written to Diognetus, who was a Roman scholar who lived between the 2nd and 3rd centuries. This is likely when the Christians were being most most persecuted, being hunted down, killed. They were meeting in underground places to have their community together. They were being thrown into the Colosseum, all of these things. And this anonymous letter is talking to this Roman scholar about his observation of Christians. He says this, They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men and by all men are persecuted. Ever have someone you have invested a lot in and they turn around and stab you in the back? They love all men and by all men are persecuted. They are poor and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute 
and yet they enjoy complete abundance. To put it simply, what the soul is in the body that Christians, what the soul is in the body is what Christians are in the world. That we as Christians can be the soul of the world. Give it more than just this temporary physical existence. That's what I want to be. I want to be someone who gives life and soul and spirit to this world. And that when people look at us, the Christians in Fort Madison or in Southeast Iowa or this church, that they can say their citizenship is in heaven. They go beyond what is required. They go the extra mile. Even when they're persecuted, they still love others. That even though they may not have a lot, you can tell they are full of life and overflowing in abundance. That they, even if they are destitute, that they have complete abundance. That what the soul is to the body, they are to this world. That's what we can be. That's what we're called to be. There is more. It's not just doing enough to get by. It's the full life that he wants to give us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the calling that you have for us, that this life isn't just a temporary experience and we're here and we do what we want and we're gone. Or we're here and we live paycheck to paycheck and we check off the list boxes every day. But that we are here to be the soul of this world. That we are here to be salt and life and light because you are that in us. We thank you for this purpose and this calling you've given us. With everyone's heads bowed and eyes still closed, if today you want to start having that citizenship in heaven, you haven't given your life to the Lord before, or maybe it's been a long time and you left and went on your own path for a while and you want to come back home to him today, or you want to start that with him today, if that's you, I'm going to give you an opportunity to raise your hand just as a first step in the process. If that's you today, on the count of three, one, two, three, put your hands up if that's you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right, you can put your hand down. If everyone today, whether you raised your hand or not, you could repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, Dear Jesus thank, you for your love. thank you for your love. Thank you for the purpose, purpose. that you've created me for. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've messed up. But today, starting now, I want to live by a higher standard. I want to give my life to you. I want to be a citizen of heaven. So I put my trust in you today. In Jesus' name, amen.